Hey, let's stand together before we uh, dive into my three-hour lecture I've got for you this morning. Um, it's going to be awesome. Um, well, we're going to pray and ask God to just uh, be present with us as we receive His Word. Uh, often at Emmaus, it's not something you have to do, but we do believe uh, there are times when, when body posture actually makes a difference in uh, the way that we connect with God. He's given us bodies and minds, and so we connect with God in body, mind, soul, spirit. Um, and so as we pray, if you would, just as we prepare to, to listen to the Scriptures, just uh, maybe uh, we often take the, the hands open position, just a, a position of receiving as we pray and we open God's Word this morning. Father, now, as we open up the Gospel of John and listen to the words of Jesus and see His life and contemplate His ways, we don't just want to know these things in mind, but we want to receive these things in heart. We want your word to shape us and mold us and make us fruitful men and women for the usefulness of your kingdom. And so we pray as Jesus did that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on the earth as it is in heaven. So now bless the reading, the teaching of the scriptures. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us the way of Jesus, that we might live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray together, amen, amen. You can have a seat, and while you're sitting, um, we're going to be in John chapter 12 in our Gospel of John series, which is scheduled to end in March, uh, so we have a couple of scheduled breaks in our John series. Um, next month, we're going to be getting into our four, five-week vision series, um, talking about the mission of Emmaus and some of our values um, so for this morning, we're in John chapter 12. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll be picking up in verse 12 of John chapter 12. But as we get into it, um, one thing to note is that at this point, Jesus is quickly approaching the cross. It's now Sunday, the 10th of Nisan. In four days, it will be the Jewish Passover, the 14th of Nisan. And Jesus will be crucified. And so Jesus is now in his final week. And on Friday, he will be crucified on a hill called Golgotha. And it just simply means the place of the skull. And if you look it up on Google or whatever, you can see the pictures of the hill where Jesus was crucified. And it does resemble a skull. The Latin word for skull, though, is Calvaria. It's where we get our English word Calvary. When we talk about the work of Jesus on Calvary, we're talking about Golgotha, the place of the skull where Jesus would be crucified. And so as we get into John chapter 12, recognize that John chapter 12 marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. From this point after today's teaching, from this point on in the journey of Jesus towards the cross, he will no longer be ministering publicly. He's going to gather and huddle together his closest friends and followers. And in chapters 13 through chapter 17, we have five chapters which have been called the Upper Room Discourse, where Jesus from the Upper Room essentially huddles together his closest followers and gives them his final words. And so today we're coming to what Jesus said in public, his final words in public, 
but in the next following successive weeks, we'll be looking at Jesus' final words to his closest followers. So this portion of John chapter 12 is Jesus' last public address. And in his last public address, he addresses three particular groups that we're going to look at this morning. I call them the Sunday crowd, first of all, the outsiders that want to be insiders, second of all, and the people who refuse to believe, third of all. And so that's really what we're going to look at is what did Jesus say in his final teaching in public and the groups to which he addressed. So we'll begin with this first group, the Sunday crowd, which we begin in verse 12 of John chapter 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come from for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus then found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, verse 17, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed a sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, this is great, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look now, the whole world has gone after him. This event, which is typically called Palm Sunday, in which Jesus is addressing this Sunday crowd, this Palm Sunday, this triumphant entry, um, was the only public demonstration that Jesus ever allowed. He did many things publicly in the sense of healing and touching, but as far as announcement of his person entering in in some kind of public parade, this was the only time that Jesus makes this kind of a public display. It's uh, significant then, and therefore is recorded in all four of the New Testament gospel accounts. And this event, called the triumphant entry, Palm Sunday as we know it, is significant for the way that these things took place. If you are Old Testament familiar, you remember back in Exodus chapter 12, there was a specific um, order in which the people were to celebrate the first Passover. And if you're new to the Bible, new to Jesus, Passover was the time in the time of the Exodus where Israel was escaping from 430 years of captivity and bondage in Egypt. And the final night... As they were being released, they were to take a a, a lamb, a a one-year-old spotless male lamb into their home. And they were to take that spotless lamb into their home on the 10th day of Nisan. And they were to keep that lamb in their home until the 14th day of Nisan, which we call the Passover, where the lamb, the spotless lamb that had been in the family home for four days, being inspected for its condition, would be slain four days later on the 14th of Nisan and its blood applied to the doorposts. And when death came through Egypt, it would pass over every home 
where the blood had been applied. Now, you know that story, many of you who have grown up in church, but it's significant the day that Jesus rides into the city is the 10th of Nisan. And if you can imagine in your mind's eye, because of the population swell in Jerusalem during this time, there are upwards of 3 million people, worshipers who are buying lambs. And so the, the, the city of Jerusalem, which is normally about eighty to 100,000 people, is swarming with tens of thousands of lambs. And into this environment, God sends his lamb, Jesus the Christ, riding in to the city on the 10th of Nisan, Four days from now, on the 14th of Nisan, the Lamb of God will be slain. Now this is very significant. But it's significant also because of the fact that the Sunday crowd and those in Israel missed their Messiah. Predominantly, the verdict over Israel is that they missed their day. That's why Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem there at the end of Matthew crying out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that slayed the prophets, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not, and now your desolation has come near. And within just a handful of years, 30 to 40 years from then, Jerusalem would be sacked by Titus Vespasian in AD 70. And Jesus weeps over a city that had missed its day, but it should not have been this way. Because the angel Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9 spoke prophetically that the, the, on the exact day that Messiah the Prince would be revealed. If you're familiar with the Daniel 9 prophecy, Daniel talks in chapter 9 about the 69 prophetic weeks. And a week in the Bible, if you don't know this, is varied interpretation-wise, but it's predominantly thought that a week in the Bible, a biblical week, is seven years. And Gabriel said to Daniel, 69 weeks have been determined upon Israel in which these events will take place. And so 69 sevens is 483, according to the Jewish year calendar, which is a 360-day year, which comes out to 173,880 days. Why does that matter? Because Gabriel said, from the day that there is the order to rebuild and restore Jerusalem, from that day it will be 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince appears, the anointed one of God. He's setting dates. He's saying from the time that Artaxerxes Longimanus, the Persian king, announces that the Jews can go back into the city and rebuild their broken down city, from that time there will be 69 weeks or Seven, uh, seven, or 69 sevens, 483 years, 173,880 days, and to the date, from the time that Artaxerxes, the Persian king, announced that the Jews could go back and rebuild their temple on March 14th, 445 BC, 1,773, 170, 483 weeks later, 69 weeks later, on April 6th, 32 AD, Jesus rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Poof. Just like the prophet said that it would be. But not only did the prophet Daniel say that this was to take place, but the prophet Zechariah, as is quoted in the text, 
Zechariah 9.9 predicts, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. They should have known that this was their Messiah. There was so much pointing to Jesus. Over 300 messianic prophecies fulfilled in the earthly life of Jesus. And yet Jesus cried out, You have missed your day. I came and you did not know me. He came into his own and his own did not know him. But not only is the day significant, but the way is significant. The way Jesus came to the Sunday crowd is significant for this reason. Israel has a history of taking up palm branches and waving them and crying out for a Savior. It happened 200 years before this event during a very brutal time in Israel's history. An evil king, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes, if you've heard of him in history, he came into the city of Jerusalem, sacked the temple, and slaughtered a pig. Now, if you know anything about a kosher diet, you know that pigs are unkosher. And just to spite and to offend and to blaspheme Yahweh God and, and, and the faith of Judaism, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes slaughters the pig and spreads the blood of the pig all over the Holy of Holies where a lamb should have been slain. And then forces the priests to drink pig's blood. And for nine years, history tells us, the Syrians bludgeoned and ruled with an iron fist over Israel and the Jews. It was a brutal time in their history. Until finally, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus raised up with his brothers and gathered a group of guerrilla warfare uh, soldiers and overthrew Antiochus Epiphanes. After all of this, this you know, being trodden down and, and, and being oppressed by the Syrians, uh, Judas Maccabeus overthrows Antiochus Epiphanes and the Jews spontaneously pick up palm branches and begin to wave them. And to this day, you can see on Jewish coinage, for, for much of Jewish history, on the back of their coins is the palm branch. Because the palm branch symbolizes for them deliverance over oppressors, military might. And so 200 years later, Israel again is oppressed by another occupying country or uh, kingdom, that is the Romans. The Romans occupy Israel and Jerusalem in particular. And so when Jesus rides into the city, they're waving palm branches, essentially saying, be our political deliverer. Be Judas Maccabeus. Overthrow Rome. That was the agenda. They weren't acknowledging Jesus as a spiritual savior. They were looking for a military king. And so they repeated what they had done 200 years previously. This isn't their first rodeo. The, 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 the Jews are used to being occupied and they're looking for political military might. But Jesus is a different type of king. The way of the cross is an entirely different way. And Jesus, yes, he did come into the city to conquer but not in the way they were thinking. His conquering and his deliverance was for a far larger group than just national Israel. Jesus had come to save the world. And he'd come to save the world from more than just Rome. He'd come to save the world for, from sin and Satan and death. Jesus had much more in mind than they did. 
They were thinking about the here and now. Jesus was thinking about the forever after. What he was going to do for the global people and all who would come after this act. Now it's interesting because the rabbis had a particular theory that when the Messiah came, if Israel was ready to receive their Messiah, he would come riding on the back of a white horse. Now, if you know your Bible a little bit, you know that Jesus will return, Revelation chapter 19, on the back of a white horse. But the rabbi said, but if we are not ready spiritually to receive our Messiah, he will come riding on a donkey. They weren't ready. Jesus comes on this donkey, this humble beast, and they have an agenda. That's the Sunday crowd. They're fickle. They call out, Hosanna, save us, waving palm branches, throwing their coats down to receive the military king. But in less than four days, this same group will be saying, crucify him, crucify him. I read a quote about fake friends. They say that fake friends are like shadows. They appear at your brightest moments, but are nowhere to be found when things get dark. It's interesting, of all the people that Jesus impacted, the hundreds and thousands that listened to him teach and saw his miracles, the, the many, the 70 plus that were his disciples, his 12, the three, Peter, James, and John. When Jesus was on the cross, winning the war against sin, Satan, and death, only one of his followers was at the foot of the cross. One of his male followers. There was one male and then a group of loyal women. God bless women for their loyalties. But of all the men that Jesus had influenced and all the masses that Jesus had influenced, only a small nucleus was there. Only John the Apostle who wrote this gospel was there. The Sunday crowd is full of fake friends with hidden agendas when they come to Jesus. But it wasn't only the Sunday crowd that Jesus spoke to in his last public display or his last teaching. But group number two is outsiders that wanted to be insiders, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And Philip is actually the only disciple with a Greek name, so it's appropriate. They're like, who's the one of these Jews with a Greek name? Let's go to that Philip guy, but he'll entertain us. So they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with this request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to go tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And to this request, they come to Jesus and say, hey, there's a group of Greeks that are requesting an audience with you, Jesus. Jesus replies this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason, this very reason I came to this hour, 
Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for the judgment to come on this world. Now the prince of this world, Satan, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When, you have finished, when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. During the time of the Passover celebration, there are a group of Greeks who had made a pilgrimage hundreds of miles to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover, to worship Yahweh apart from Greek society. Once in Jerusalem, they sought this infamous rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And they came to Philip and they said, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. Now the church that I come from in Oregon, on the stage facing the congregation, the pews, out of sight of, of the naked eye from people facing the stage, there's a little plaque. I think it's still there. Is it still there? My in-laws are in town, so I can verify with them. Um, right there on the stage is this verse in John chapter 12. Sir, we would see Jesus. It's a reminder to everyone who preaches from that stage that they didn't come to see you. That the, that the heart cry of every person that ever gathers in that particular building, it's a reminder to the pastors that open their mouth, Sirs, we want to see Jesus. Beautiful. And this group of Greeks come to Philip and later Andrew and say, we want to see Jesus. And this word is brought to Jesus but as far as we know, Jesus never spoke to this group of Greeks, these Gentile seekers. But what he does is tell Philip and Andrew the way in which he is going to reach all people. And he uses a farming analogy. He says, this is the way the kingdom works. This is the way of the cross. Unless a grain of wheat, small little grain of wheat, Unless it dies and is buried, it will remain a single seed. But if it dies, it will produce more seeds. In our vernacular, it would be unless the kernel of popcorn is put under intense electromagnetic radiation in the microwave, it will not produce a fluffy white thing that brings great pleasure while you watch the new Christopher Robin movie or binge on Netflix or whatever. And so Jesus is saying, if there is no death, there is no life. That's the way of the cross. If you love your life, Jesus says, you lose it. But then he says something 
counterintuitive that needs explanation. If you hate your life in this world, you keep it for eternal life. What does it mean to hate your life in this world? It doesn't mean disregard, self-loathing, listen to emo music, wear black, and hate your life. It's not some kind of angsty revolution of the millennial generation. But what Jesus is essentially saying is that the life in this world should not be held too tight. That is, life in this world does not compare to the life in the kingdom. But we can be certain of this. Jesus lived a very joyful earthly life. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9 says that God had anointed him with the oil of gladness above all of his companions. There wasn't a happier earthly man than the man Jesus. He lived a happy earthly life, but he's telling us, don't hold on too tightly. Don't expect too much from an experience that was never intended to deliver true kingdom-level happiness. And my recommendation for us in listening to the words of Jesus is Hate your life in this world to the degree that you don't expect heaven on earth. That certainly there will be moments when the kingdom of God comes to heaven as it is, or comes to the earth as it is in heaven. But primarily, predominantly, we are here during this age awaiting the return of the Christ. And so we hold on to our lives with loose hands. And Jesus teaching us the way of the cross teaches us we give to gain. We die to live. We let go in order to take hold of. That's the way of the cross. And then Jesus said, notice verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me. So in verse 25, he says, you don't love this life. If you love it, you're going to lose it. If you're in love with this life and all that it offers, you're going to lose it. But if you hate your life in this world, that you hold it loosely, you will gain it in the end. Eugene Peterson translates verse 25 this way in his version, the message. Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. That's an interesting thought. Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go... Reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Are you holding on to anything that Jesus would say, let that thing go. Hold that thing with loose hands. Don't be so tight-fisted. There's the you know, great preacher, public speaker illustration of the hunting techniques of those in farming villages in Africa and India, unlike North Carolina, which our problem with pests is lots of raccoons and squirrels. And apparently because of the way this winter or this summer has gone, we're going to get an outbreak of armadillos as well. Watch out, the armadillos are coming. (laughs) And you're supposed to be careful against the armadillo because apparently they are potential carriers of leprosy. So if you don't want leprosy or whatever kind of diseases, stay away from the armadillos. But in the ancient farming villages of Africa and India, they've got a problem with monkeys. Now, I would be stoked if I saw a monkey in my backyard, but they're a problem 
They're they're just like the raccoon that gets into your trash can. And so the farmers in these uh, rural villages in Africa and India uh, have this dilemma how to catch a monkey. Because if you don't know anything about monkeys, they're very agile creatures. They can climb trees and jump great distances and get away real fast. So they've developed this way of catching the monkey. They will hollow out a gourd or a coconut and make just a a hole inside the gourd of the coconut that's just monkey hand size. So the monkey, empty-handed monkey hand, could go right into the gourd. They'll put into the gourd, the empty gourd, what monkeys like. Little shiny things, pieces of candy, nuts, or whatever. And so little monkey, little pest, will come and stick his empty hand into the empty gourd or coconut, which is attached to a tree or fastened to a log. They'll reach their hand in there and they'll grab the trinket inside and hold on to it, but the hole is only big enough for empty-handed monkey. But apparently, I I mean, you could verify this on Snopes or whatever you want to do, but apparently empty-handed monkey can fit his hand in, but but monkey with his hand around a little gem or piece of candy can't pull his hand out. And apparently the monkey won't let it go. He will stay there holding on to whatever's in his hand until the hunter comes, the farmer comes, and monkey steaks are back on the menu kind of thing, right? And, 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 I mean, if we were to counsel little monkey, we would say, little monkey, that little gem you have in your hand is not worth your life. That little nut you have in your hand, that little trinket you have in your hand, is not worth your life. That's not life. Life is letting go of things that are holding you captive that you become a prisoner to. Hopefully, point well taken from Jesus, who says, if you want to lose your life, love it. Be monkey hands. Hold on, little monkey, to your vocation. Hey, we all have to work, and work is good. God made us to work. But if you find your entire identity in what you do for a living, you're monkey hands. Family is good. Marriage is good. Children are a blessing. Our, our parents are a blessing. Our families are a blessing. But if family becomes more than they ought to be, they become the place where you expect ultimate fulfillment. Or for many followers of Jesus, they let their kids dictate what they do with their adult lives. There are many people in the United States of America in in affluent society like we live in that let their kids rule their lives. And the reason they can't serve Jesus is because they're dominated by the demands of the schedule of their children. Because they got to give their kids all the things. And Jesus says, if you love it and hold on to it too tightly, though it may even not be an inherently evil thing, it can bring you lifelessness. You are monkey hands. And on and on we could go. Money is a good thing, but if you love it, the Bible says the love of money is what? The root of all sorts of evil. So Jesus is saying, Live the way of the cross and release yourself from all these things that would entangle you. But then he noticed Jesus speaks very candidly about the way of the cross. Holding our lives loosely, letting our lives go to the way of the cross. Notice what he says about it. Let's just be honest here. Verse 27, he says, Now my soul is troubled. About this hour he's about to face. The cross deeply troubled Jesus. He was fully aware of all the pain that awaited him on a psychological, 
physical, spiritual level, as he took on the torment of a bodily crucifixion, as he took on the psychological rejection of humanity waving their fist and say, we don't want you as our king, and as he took on in that moment the sins of the world, he said, the way of the cross causes my soul to be troubled. But then he follows up by saying, but what shall I say to this hour? Father, deliver me from this hour? He says, no. The reason I came was for this hour. So what do I say? Father, glorify thy name. God has not called us to live comfortable lives. The comfortable life is, Father, deliver me from this hour. But Jesus says, no. I'm not called to be comfortable. I'm called to be conformable. Father, glorify your name. The person who is living in the way of the cross looks at life's difficulties that Jesus has called you to bear and I, we say to it, my soul is troubled because of the way of the cross is not easy, but there is life there. And we say, as Jesus did in conflict of soul, shall I say about this hour, Father, deliver me, or shall I say, this is the reason you have put me on the earth now through my life glorify your name jesus primary reason for living was to glorify the father and the father says in verse 28 jesus jesus says this mighty declaration and the father speaks from heaven verse 28 i have glorified it and will glorify it again in other words well done jesus You've lived to glorify my name. But then he announces, verse 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So Jesus' answer to the outsiders that want to be insiders, these Greeks, is that everyone will be welcomed in when I'm lifted up. You want to talk to me now. The, the Greeks come, they're like, oh man, this spectacle, this, this enigmatic rabbi Sirs, we want to see him. And, and Jesus doesn't even give the Greeks an audience. But he says, they'll see me when I'm lifted up. Indicating the kind of death he would die. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, when I'm crucified, that will be the agency that will draw all men to me. They don't need to see me now. They need to see me then when I'm lifted up. But he says simultaneously, not only will this cross be the saving of humanity, Drawing of all men, making it possible for all sorts of people to come. Greeks and Jews and Gentiles and people of every tribe and tongue and color. And right now, can we not say Jesus has won the globe? Not every single person, but as we look across the globe, the gospel has been preached on every continent on the, on the planet. Jesus has reached the globe. He has drawn all men to himself. But he says, while this is true, I will draw men to myself. He said, now the hour has come for judgment on the world and on the prince of this world. The cross is simultaneously saving and judging. It's a two-edged sword. Paul said when he talked about the effect of the cross on his own life, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that statement. That is a statement to live by. Let my boasting be in the Lord. May, my, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me 
and I to the world. In other words, I have a new master now. I'm no longer enslaved to the world or the prince thereof because of what Jesus has done. These are some of Jesus' final words. And then finally, he says in his final public address, he speaks to number three, people who refuse to believe. Verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they would not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this is because he saw Jesus... Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. This is tragic, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe or in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. And the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus' final words. The key word in the passage in this part of it is believe. And we see a digression in unbelief. First, they would not believe. Even after Jesus had performed, verse 37, so many signs in their presence they would not believe. Second, they could not believe. For this reason, they could not believe. Because they would not, they could not. And then thirdly, they should not believe. Verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. In theological terms, the theologians call this judicial blindness. When and if a person begins to deny and reject the light and the truth, they come to a point where not only can they no longer see, but God does not want them to see. Because he is ratifying their decision to live in unbelief. The Bible and the words of Jesus talk to us about judgment. Those are the hard things to get our hearts and minds around. But God has never called me to be a judge. Jesus actually said about himself, I did not come to the world to judge it. I came to save it. But in rejecting Savior, you judge yourself, and let's not be silly about this. Jesus says, but there is one who will judge. The judge will come, and he will look at what you did with me, and there will be repercussions there. This week, uh, our friend Christopher was out. I hope I can tell this story. I should have asked you for permission. Um, He was out at Jordan Lake, so forgiveness is easier to get than permission. Um, (laughs) He was out at Jordan Lake with his family. Um, 
And uh, the girls ran up to him and they're like, Dad, there's a guy out there drowning. Uh, he apparently swam out too far, got a cramp in his leg, and uh, he was yelling out for help. And the girl's like, Daddy, like, what do we do? And, and Christopher jumped into action like Baywatch's David Hasselhoff and brrr, just pulled off his shirt and ran into the water, grabbed a lifesaver, swam out, and essentially saved a man's life this week. So I don't know how many of us uh, will be able to say that we've been able to do that, but I was thinking about Jesus and, and saying to the world, I'm your savior right now, I'm not your judge. I mean, Christopher in this instance for this man was his savior, not his judge. Christopher did not swim out there to drown somebody. He swam out there to save somebody. He had a lifesaver. But if the man encountering the savior, the Christ type, Christopher, um, if he would have rejected the salvation that Christopher was bringing, then he would have declared judgment upon himself. So Christopher could swim out there and say, I've come to save you, not to hurt you, not to drown you, not to harm you. But if you choose not to receive what I'm offering you, you will die. You're going down. And essentially, Jesus comes to the world and says to this audience who would not believe, therefore they could not believe, therefore they should not believe, I came to save you, but you did not want to be saved. Verse 47, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. But verse 48, there is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. So as we draw to a close, the two things to take away from this morning, if nothing else, is number one, the way of the cross saves. Jesus said, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The way of the cross saves. And number two, Jesus asks you to live the way of the cross. Notice verse 26. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Following the way of the cross. Life through death. Gain through loss. Victory through apparent defeat. Giving your life away. Not loving your life in this world, but hating it to the point where you say, I'm renouncing this world's hold on me. Father, my life is yours down to my last breath. My life is yours down to my last dollar. My life is yours down to my last bit of energy. I'm giving myself to the way of the cross. And I finish with a reading from a confession that actually happens uh, around Lent for the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, uh, the Episcopal Church, and many Protestant churches observe um, during Lent um, the Via Crucis, which is simply the way of the cross. And um, if you've ever experienced that, anybody ever been through the 14 stations of the cross, the Via Crucis? Um, you walk through them and there's these images which basically represent the last steps of Jesus before he went to the cross. And at each station you stop and you observe the, 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 the image of Jesus and then you say a confession and a prayer. And at the fifth station of the 14 stations of the Via Crucis, the way of the cross, 
is the station where Simon the Cyrene took Jesus' cross and carried it. He was commissioned to do so. And I wanted to read to you the confession that one church prays when they get to this station as we think about the way of the cross. Listen to this. Jesus, the soldiers are becoming impatient. This is taking longer than they wanted it to. They are afraid you won't make it to the hill where you, were, you will be crucified. As you grow weaker, they grab a man out of the crowd and make him help you carry your cross. He was just watching and... He was just watching what was happening, but all of a sudden he is helping you carry your cross. Here's the confession. For you young people, very young, if you're in the room, if you're a child. As a child, sometimes I see people who need my help. Sometimes I pretend not to hear my parents call me. <laughs> I disappear when I know others could use my help. As an adult, sometimes I try to do as little as I can and still get by. Others might need my help, but I ignore their needs even when I'm asked to help. I sometimes claim to be too busy. My Jesus, blessed, thrice blessed was He who aided Thee to bear the cross. Blessed too shall I be if I aid Thee to bear the cross. By patiently bowing my neck to the crosses, Thou shalt send me during my life. My Jesus, give me grace to do so. Let's pray. Father, we love Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we are moved by the way of the cross that He has invited us into. And I pray that each of us would hear from You about our lives where we are not living the way of the cross. We first must come to Your cross and receive Your life. When You were lifted up, You've drawn all people to Yourself. We come to You, Jesus, the lifted up Messiah, Draw us near. But then as we come, we hear you say, If you love me, you will do as I do. If you love me, you won't love your life in this world. You will hate it. And then you will gain it. You will live for me. You will live for others. You will not shirk your responsibilities or your calling to the people that Father has put in your life, to the tasks that Father has called you to do, at risk of your own comfort, at risk of your own success, at risk of you becoming all that you wanted to become in this world. The way of the cross is very different. And Father, we ask now as we come to the cross, come to the table of the Lord, the Eucharist, eating and drinking, we ask that the way of the cross would be made known to us and that we would faithfully walk it as we know we ought to.